Number 12, God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. We're going to start Lesson 12, Esther and Mordecai, and Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and Arthur is going to offer our opening prayer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity for us to come to convene together and study your word. We invite your presence through your Holy Spirit to lead us through the discussions, mold our thoughts, and help us, Lord, to explore all the truths that you have in store for us. May we be drawn closer to you, and may these truths transform our hearts into your likeness. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and you care for us and you always listen to us. This we are asking in the loving and kind name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Arthur, for your prayer and welcome everybody to lesson number 12 in the quarter on God's mission and our mission. You see the memory text there from Isaiah. I will give you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And this penultimate lesson invites us to consider a small book in the Old Testament by the name of Esther. There are two books that are named after women, Ruth and Esther, and how are they related to mission and what we can learn from that. But before we start, let me ask, how do you read the Bible? What's the way to read the Bible? Now, we all agree that it's important to read the Bible because we believe it's inspired and therefore it should be read. It's not a usual, typical ancient book, but we say it's inspired and that's why it deserves to be read. But how? Now, you remember that in ancient world, there was this Greek writer, Aesop, and he came up with 237 Aesop's fables. And it doesn't matter whether it happened or not. The main thing is that you listen to the story and learn the morale. What is the morale in the story? So have you heard about the fox and the crow? One day the fox was following through the wood and saw a crow on the limb of the tree overhead. But what caught the attention of the fox this time, that the lucky crow had a big cheese in her beak. And so the fox thought, no need to search any further for food. Here is my breakfast. But of course, the crow was not willing to share the breakfast. And so the fox says, good morning, beautiful creature. And the crow watches the fox suspiciously, kept her beak tightly closed on the cheese, and so did not return the greeting. And what a charming creature you are, said the fox. How her feathers shine, what a beautiful form, what splendid wings. Such a beautiful bird should have a very lovely voice, since everything else about the bird is so perfect. Could she just sing one song? I know if she could sing a song that I would hail her as the queen of birds. And listening to these flattering words, the crow forgot all her suspicion and her breakfast. She wanted to become and be called the queen of birds. So she opened her beak wide to utter the loudest call, and the cheese fell down straight into the open mouth of the fox. Thank you, the fox said sweetly, walking off. Though your voice is cracked, sure you have voice enough. But where are your wits? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. There is the morale. You know what you are supposed to learn from the story. Now, is the Bible a glorified version of Aesop's fables? Are we supposed to look for the morale in the story? And if yes, if that's your understanding what the Bible provides, then just go ahead, study the lesson, and get the children's Sabbath school version. 
But if you believe that the fact that the Bible is inspired means that the author wants you to struggle with something, then probably we need to struggle with something that is there in the text and the author wants you to struggle with because the lesson is not as simple as with Aesop's fables. Interestingly, how Lessing in Germany improved on this and that people should not be, or the fox should not be rewarded. So he came up with a different ending about the poison food. And so the one who steals the food is ultimately punished and poisoned by that food. So even by 19th century, people feel that oh, this is rather simplistic. Sometimes you wonder if people studying the lesson and think at least as Lessing did, probably there should be more to it if it's inspired word of God than this. So let's start with the historical framework. As you can see from the thoughts from Graham Maxwell in your material, now, when the time comes for God's nation to return back to promised land, when finally the cry comes, fallen Babylon, fallen is the Babylon the great, which is good news for these Jews because they can return back to the homeland and rebuild Jerusalem. You know what happens if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Only about 10% of people who went into captivity return. And actually, Ezra discovers there are no Levites among those because they live from the tithe. And if only a small percentage of people are returning, they feel that their livelihood is not secure. And so they decide that the holy dollar, the mighty dollar or the holy pound or euro in the Babylonian captivity where they are doing well economically is more worth sticking with than the uncertain trek over the desert and then rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so Ezra needs to go send the messengers back and plead with them, we are going to build a temple, and how are we going to serve in the temple if we don't have Levites, and finally people come. But, you know, I would rather have 42,000 people whose spirit was moved by the Lord, as Ezra describes these people, than to have a mega church of 40,000 or 400,000 who just don't care and are there because of the consumer's mentality. Now, here are those who are sensitive to God's guidance and calling, and they know they have a mission. And in the words of our memory text, they are supposed to be the light to the nations. And what is God going to do for those who couldn't care less and stay behind in Babylon? And the answer is, God is going to use Esther and Mordecai to help them and to save them because he cares about them as well. So, someday lesson is captive in foreign culture. By the way, under number two, the lesson says none of us, for instance, lives in an Adventist country where the principles of our faith are to some degree the law of the land, meaning what a pity because that would be a wonderful thing if we all lived in a country where all the principles of our faith would be enshrined in the law and everybody would have to keep it. That would be a wonderful thing to do. Really? Would you want to live on Pitcairn where all population are Adventists? And if you want to do some reading on the story, you discover they have their own set of problems. So I put the question there, which aspect of your faith would living in an Adventist country make easier and which would make it more difficult? How would you be the light to the nations if everybody believed just like you do? Would that be an ideal situation to disappear to an island where it's only us listening to our radio, listening to our TV, reading only the books that we wrote for ourselves, that would be an ideal situation. Wouldn't you enjoy that? If only we could have that, right? And everybody said, <laughs> amen. 
Any reactions to that? What did Jesus say about the salt? It needs to get out of salt shaker and mix the food in order to fulfill the mission. Blue? I remember when I was in academy in college, my parents were back at the general conference and they were building all these. It was going to be this wonderful area for all of the GC people and everything. And I just remember my mom said, oh, pew, not us, because people are people no matter where they are. There's the good, the bad and the ugly everywhere. And so I think God likes diversity and puts us where we can be most beneficial and not just clandestined into our own four walls of our beliefs. Okay, thank you. Sean? I remember thinking about the time I was a sophomore in college on an Adventist campus of how stifled and stymied I was and my thinking. Dissent, questions, skepticism was not available for the most part and not that welcome. So I think that that would be a real difficulty if I was in a country where everybody believed the same thing and there was no possibility of growing and learning beyond what the norms are for the intent of assisting and helping and rubbing shoulders with the outside world. So I found it quite difficult. That is not a real strong appeal to me. And in the previous lesson, we just discussed how God did not allow the Israelites to destroy everybody near and far around them so that they are exposed to these people and they learn how to live with them and how Jesus comes and provides a corrective to their understanding because what they thought was the will of God as far as the relating to them was concerned was actually an isolation that God was not pleased about. And that's why he tries to broaden the horizons of his disciples and take them out of their comfort zone. John? God established a nation of tithe-paying Seventh-day Adventists at the time when Christ came, and they were the very ones who killed the Lord himself. Yeah. Oh, Babylon is described that all people were of the same mind. They had the same ideas, and it wasn't the blissful heaven. It was a source of confusion, and God was not pleased with that. Michael? I remember when Bill Loveless was pastor at University Church in Linda. He asked me one time, what was my view of the Adventists living in Loma Linda, the Adventist church? And I said, I didn't want to discuss the precepts of the church, but I said, as a people, isolated and insulated. And he didn't disagree with me. Okay. I remember somebody sprayed the sign Loma Linda and put 144,000 over it at one point. Bob? Well, I went to a good Catholic law school, and I remember there was an article that came out in the paper on campus about the Catholic Church and Loma Linda witnessing to Loma Linda. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was the last mission field there. All right, let's go to Daniel 1, and we are not going to read it. You remember the story. So here we are, and strangely enough, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then comes, surprise, surprise, the Lord gave King Jehoiakim of Judah into his power, as well as the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. So who is behind this? What happened? God is. It was God who gave Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result of that, the king commanded the palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. And we are 
are going to educate them and we are going to teach them the Babylonian dream so that they don't rebel against us and we don't need to besiege them and to fight with them because they will be assimilated into our culture, into our way of thinking, and then they will see the beauty of our ways and they will be all living the Babylonian dream and everybody will be living happily ever after. So Nebuchadnezzar has this magnificent plan how everybody is going to live the Babylonian dream because they will be included in the Babylonian kingdom. Meanwhile, God has another plan, just Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know it, and his plan is to include Babylon into God's plan, into God's kingdom. And as a result of that, you read that young man without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in king's palace, were taught the literature of Chaldeans, so they have to study about the myths and the version of the flood that Chaldeans wrote and about the gods of Chaldeans. When the king assigned them portion of food, they were educated for three years in the University of Babylon so that they can be civil servants in the king's court at the end of that. So what kind of classes, subjects, modules do they have at the University of Babylon? One of them would be astrology, how to foretell the future and the fate from the stars. One of them would be divination from the intestines of the animals and other things. So what do these young men, the four young men, do? And of course, the text also says, verse 7, the palace master gave them other names so that the names which mention or are connected with God of Israel are replaced and connected with gods of Babylon, and so that they forget their religion. And what do they do? Daniel 1.8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine, so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. So now what's interesting? They study astrology, they study divination from the intestines of the animals, they study all the subjects of the University of Babylon. And not only they study in order to pass the exam to survive, if you read to the end of the chapter, they study in such a way that they are 10 times better than anybody else. So they excel in this, in spite of the fact that the Torah clearly forbids studying and doing these things. But they realize that different circumstances require different response, that they are not living in the promised land in their own country, they are not in charge and that somebody else prescribes what they are going to do. And so they do it. But they decide, but here we are going to draw the line. We are willing to do that, but we are not willing to do this. And what is God's reaction? What is God's response? He helped them in their studies. Wow. He gave them success. Instead of saying, you miserable creatures, don't you know that you give the devil an inch and he takes the whole hand? Don't you know that your dancing with the devil is the way to hell? He says... I can work with these guys. Together we can accomplish something. And God rewards their decision-making process. That they decide to draw the line somewhere, and God says, good, I can work with them. Bob? Wouldn't Moses have had the same situation when he was training to become a pharaoh, or at least a prince back in Egypt? Would he have not had the same educational situation in the military academy there to be the general and the chief of the army and learn everything from the language to the literature and the things that they taught him there yeah so what does it mean to be a captive in a foreign culture how do you relate to the foreign culture now one option is to be assimilated so there is no difference 
That's what Babylon wants them. The other is to isolate yourself and have nothing to do with the culture. Rita? I think probably the best thing is to assimilate because I think this is why Daniel and his friends went along with the education that they were being offered. Because by understanding that culture, they had a way into it to sow seeds of a different message, if you like. Whereas if they were to refuse it, they would have lost their lives probably. And there would have been no use to God whatsoever. But the diet, on the whole, would have nothing to do with what they were able to achieve in the nation, knowledge-wise. So I think assimilation is the thing to understand, learn to understand your audience first. Yes, if you don't understand what people believe, how they think, how are you going to reach them? I always admired Daniel, how he not only related in Babylon, but he went on to serve different kings. And typically they were annihilated when a new kingdom came with the leaders of the past kingdom. And somehow Daniel's ability to relate in his wisdom, he assimilated their cultures and could work for God in these different kingdoms too. So he's an amazing example of reaching other cultures. Yes. And so in the quarter on mission, this is very important to see how they navigate this landmine, this difficult landscape and how God can use them in spite of the fact that it's very different than what they imagined as young lads growing up on the court in Jerusalem. Arthur? I must imagine that it was quite difficult for them to maintain their beliefs amidst a hostile culture and religion and and everything. Often I feel like we generally tend to think it was simple and clear for them in all situations. But when we say they studied the education there, I'm not so sure how easy it was for them to go through all those classes and to some extent be able to maintain their faith through it all. It's easier when you don't go to those classes than when you have to study and then demonstrate understanding in that heathen education and all. And given also that they couldn't perform the sacrifices, there wasn't any temple You might confirm with me whether this is true. I read somewhere that some of these princes of Israel were castrated and made eunuchs, which would exclude them in the temple in Jerusalem, if that is true. So I think that was a very difficult space for them. But in spite of that, like you said, where they drew the line, God honored their thought process and said he's willing to work with them. So they decide to engage with the culture rather than confirm or withdraw from it. And as you said, those who were not in that situation or didn't think it through, they have very clear opinions what they should have done and why. And Daniel comes up with a proposal. And the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar also gave Daniel favor and compassion and gave Daniel and these four men knowledge and skills. So God is at work in Babylon as much as he's at work in every situation before. What was a difficult situation of the fall of Babylon, God is still at work. It's very clear from Daniel 1. Jane? I would like also to add the aspect of humility in integrating or navigating a different culture. Because these young men, they accept what is happening, but like you said, they draw the line on, I'll take up to this point, but 
I will not do anything about my God. I want to add something about this little maid, Naaman. She's also navigating a different culture and through a lot of humility and not forgetting. Imagine she's just a child and she's taken captive. And instead of being rude and defiant in a different culture, she becomes very humble and humble to the point of the master listening to her point to me, it really means that navigating a different culture is, can be difficult, but with humility and not forgetting what God can do is a possibility. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Let's go to Esther chapter two. So how do you navigate living in a different culture? That's the issue that they have. And of course, you and I have because all of us live in a culture which is antagonistic to our beliefs. Nobody lives in that ideal or idealistic or quasi-ideal country, as we mentioned at the beginning. So let's read Esther 2, verse 5 to 7. Now there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with King Jehoina of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The girl was fair and beautiful, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. Okay, and let's go to verse 19. When the virgins were being gathered together, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's units who guarded the threshold, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. But the matter came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, both the men were hanged on the gallows. It was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Okay, so you discover here is Mordecai, or Mordecai, and he sits at the king's gate, so he's one of the civil servants. Remember the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31? who gets up early in the morning and works hard the whole day and runs her own business, takes care of her family, invests and does this and that while her husband is doing what? Sitting in the gate. You have an illustration, the life is not fair. But sitting in the gate is just a metaphor for having an important position that requires judgment, that requires wisdom to render opinions. So he has this important position in the king's court, and then he discovers a plot to kill the king, a conspiration, and he quickly reports it, and he's loyal to the king. So what is his engagement with the culture? Does he withdraw? Does he assimilate? Or does he find a good way of dealing with it? 
it indicates that he had his ear to the ground. He was very tuned in to what was going on around him, which became a tremendous blessing, of course, Holy Spirit, that he was just very aware of what was going to be happening. Yes. Thank you, Iris. I would say there's some degree of acculturation here where he is embracing the new culture. But there's also still a strong sense of identity that he has also passed on to Esther. And he's nuanced about it. He told her not to tell anyone, but she knew very well that she was a Jew. And he was affirming and loyal to the culture in which he lived. Yes. So he tells her when she fills out the application for the beauty contest, where it says nationality, he says, leave that empty. Just pretend that you forgot. The lesson says they were wise in keeping silent about their family and people. All right, Rita? I think it shows that he has been completely assimilated. It's not just him assimilated into the culture, but the culture has assimilated him. The society has assimilated him because he's become somebody important. And he's trusted enough to receive that job. And he returns the favor so when he discovers something which is against the system, against the king, he quickly reports it and makes sure that the king is safe. Instead of saying, thank you, Jesus, good for you, finally these guys are going to get rid of the pagan king, the sooner the better. No, he does his duty. Sean? Yes, may I suggest that engaging with this foreign culture, Mordecai engaged at a point of his strengths. And I make that assumption and take that position as a way to render direction for my engaging with culture, that I must do it at a point of strength or giftedness. And it seems that in this case, Mordecai did engage as a general point of wisdom, but he engaged in such a way that his giftedness would be a strength, a virtue, and an assistance to the culture that he is engaging with. Okay, thank you. Michael? It's not unusual. In fact, it's the history of the United States that regardless of the culture from which you originally emigrated, I don't care if they were Italian or whether they were Irish or English or whatever, the next generation, they've assimilated and become Americans. And that's the way they look at things. And so I don't think it's unusual at all that Jews who are held in captive after a, a generation or so they're no longer Jews. Most of them are now in a different culture and a different people. And what it takes the stalwarts, whether it's Daniel or whoever, to hang on to their religious beliefs and their culture. Yes. Thank you. Let's go to chapter three. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would avail, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance to him, Haman was infuriated, but he thought it beneath him to lay hands on Mordecai alone. 
So, having been told who Mordecai's people were, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And verse 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. And the king responded in verse 11. The king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people as well to do with them as it seems good to you. Whatever. Now, Haman says in his way, he comes to the king, offers him a bribe, 340 metric tons of silver, over $200 million in today's money. If only you get rid of these people. And the king says, all right, whatever. Doesn't even know which group of people he's talking about. And notice, here are people who do not respect our laws. Notice how he goes from individual to collective guilt. Their laws are different from those of other people. They do not keep the king's laws. And so it's not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. And so we need to get rid of them. Now, the Tuesday lesson says Mordecai's faithful witness. Verse 2 says in NIV, Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor to Haman. And the lesson says the Bible does not give the reason that Mordecai did not kneel before these men. But we know why. He was a faithful Jew. Mordecai was not willing to pay homage to a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite, the enemies of his people. How could a faithful Jew kneel down before an Amalekite? How could he worship anyone but the Lord? Yeah, but we know. We don't even need the text. We already know the answer. The text only complicates the matter. So let's stay with the children's Sabbath school version, because here children is the morale from the Aesop's fable. Now, I humbly suggest that we don't know, and that's what the author wants you to struggle with. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 3, and the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? They asked the same question that you and I asked. Why is he not bowing down? Now, if you know a little bit of Torah, I think I put under number 5, if you know a little bit of Torah, then you know that Abraham in chapter 18 bowed down to the visitors who came to see him. And Abraham was a father of the entire Jewish faith, and he does not have a problem to bow down. Jacob bows down before Esau. The sons of Jacob bow down before Joseph. And so all over the place in the Torah, people bow down to others. This is just a way of showing deference. There is no religious implication in that. It's not idolatry. Daniel says to the king, king, live forever. Although by the end of the speech, he says, tonight the kingdom will be taken away from you and you will be killed. So king live forever is till before the end of this night. So forever was less than one night. But he still says to him, king, live forever because that's how you greet the king. So is the text important or is it not? Now, if you look at verse 4, they ask the same question. Why do you disobey the king's command? They want to know why this attitude. Verse 4, when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman and then he was infuriated. Now, 
if Mordecai was a faithful witness and they ask him, why are you not bowing down? This is an amazing opportunity. He has his speech prepared and he gives them a Bible study on who you bow down to and who you don't. But that's not what he does. Now, you would expect the faithful witness that he will give them a Bible study on second commandment, although they are not buying down to a statue, they are buying down to a living person. But he doesn't. He doesn't say anything. Now, have you heard the words, king's servants spoke to him day after day? Yes. Have you heard it before in antecedent reading? Yes, actually, yes, they are these words. And they are in the story of Joseph. And there you learn about Putifar's wife, who has certain proposal for Joseph, but he says no. And when he refuses, then she is going to talk to him day after day, trying to convince him. Now, the question why Mordecai did not bow, it's not a trivial question. Now, do we need to hear that the king's horses run very fast? Yeah, but it's a detail which is insignificant or not that important. But this is something that the author wants us to struggle with. Why does he defy Haman? Now, you might think that when this decree is formulated by Haman, it's going to be foiled by Mordecai, so you know that makes it hero. But let's face it, the only reason why Haman made this decree was because of Mordecai and that he did not bow down to him. So if Mordecai did not have a good reason for that choice, how much of a hero is he really? And so Haman, who is the top servant of the king, and all the other servants of the king are supposed to bow down to him, and they do, except for one. There is this Mordecai, the guy who did not bow down, and he is member of king's court, and he works as a manager and civil servant there. And we know that he is loyal because he reported the conspiracy. Yet they ask him, why are you not listening to King's orders? And so here is the answer. How do you know that he is faithful? How do you know that he is loyal? And if you go back to the story of Joseph, he ends up in the house of Potiphar, and he got a pretty good deal. He earns his mother's trust, and eventually... He got free reign to administer the household as he sees fit, and everything works well until the great one day when he has the greatest trial of his young life. And when the other man left the grounds, he is approached by Mrs. Potiphar, and she tries to seduce him. Come, nobody will ever know, but he says no. And when he says no, she persists, and then she does this day after day. But he didn't listen to her, and it's the same type of phraseology. And how do you know what true loyalty is all about? Now, if Joseph agrees, it seems that he is loyal to his master. But if he agrees with the proposal, he's actually not loyal, but no one will know. So here is Mordecai. He has the choice whether he will bow down to Haman. But the choice for him is he's expressing a deep loyalty to his own master, the king, by resisting the temptation of Haman to bow down to him because this is something how Haman is usurping the power that belongs to king only to himself. And so by refusing to bow down to Haman, who is usurping the authority of the king, Mordecai shows loyalty to the king. And so he actually is loyal, even if he needs to pay the price. Nothing would be easier, just like in the case of Joseph, to say, yeah, okay, in that case, I agree, let's do it. And especially this is clear from the verse 1, 
Haman was promoted, and verse 2, and all the servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now, who is this him? It doesn't seem like that this can be the servants of the king. And because it's singular, the king was talking about the one. And the text is not very precise. Who is this him? But why was the decree issued to him? It doesn't oblige Haman. It obliges everybody else. And how did the courtiers know about this decree? If the king was really talking just to Haman, that means that Haman himself was the only source of information. And there is no way to verify what the king was telling him. And if they, the courtiers got the story from Haman, how true is the story? So remember, so here's the guy, and we will look at it in a moment, and his character, who says, Sir, I really appreciate the promotion. Together you and I shall bring order to this Persian empire. But there is one this tiny little thing that may have been overlooked in all this noise surrounding my promotion. You know, perhaps it would be a good idea for all the senior staff around here to show some deference to me when I roam through the palace and the courtyards, because as your executive vice president of the whole Persian empire, actually I represent the crown. And you and I know this isn't for me. I'm just your humble servant sitting at the dust of your feet. But where I go, there goes the might of Persia. And by bowing down to me, whether they see me, the other servants will be constantly expressing the allegiance to the crown. So don't you think this would be in the interest of empire and the interest of you if we do it this way? And then suddenly you see what's going on and that by refusing to bow down to the king, Mordecai is actually loyal to the king as he proved when he reported the conspiracy against him and that he is just protesting against this usurpation of the power and authority on part of Haman, who is actually not loyal to the king, but he thinks about himself. And you will get an insight into that later when king cannot sleep, and they bring the book about him and read about the great deeds that he accomplished. And then he remembers that Mordecai saved his life, and he asks, so how did we reward the guy? And the servants say, actually, we did not. So then the king comes with the proposal, what they are going to do. And when Haman comes in the morning, he says to him, what should be done to the person that the king wants to honor? And Haman can think only about himself and says, okay, this is how the person should be treated because he can't think of anybody else, just himself. And then to his surprise, the king says, all right, then go and take Mordecai and do the same thing and make sure that you include everything you just mentioned and don't forget anything and do this. And he has a shock of his life because he could not think about anyone himself. And that's where you have the attitude that he's not thinking about the king and the kingdom. He's only thinking about himself. So that's one example where the text actually, by giving you hints, and they, he didn't say why he's not bowing down. And they persisted day by day, gives you hints, struggle with this. There is something going on here. Don't jump to easy and quick conclusions. And the same in Wednesday's lesson, Esther realizes that she cannot win this on her feminine beauty and her wits. And we will comment later how intelligent she is and how she knows how to say things in a way that ultimately the king will have almost no chance of saying no to her. She cannot come into his presence and say, oh, Esther, what do you want? And she, ah, oh, that's easy. Hang your chief of staff and reverse the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be reversed. 
she knows that that's not how things work. But she says to Mordecai, let's do it this way. For three days, I am going to fast and you are going to fast. And let's bring God into this and see what will be the outcome. Now, the lesson says, for the Jews in such situation as described here, prayer would certainly accompany fasting. That is, though they acted on their own behalf, prayer was central to their response. What obvious lesson can we take from this? Now, you know what is the obvious lesson? The obvious lesson is you need to follow the text. And what is unusual about the book of Esther? It's the book in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name. And it's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention prayer. So what obvious lesson can we take from this? The obvious lesson is that the text is not needed. We already know what we are supposed to do, and the text only interferes with our conclusions. So our conclusions are more important than the inspired text. No, the obvious lesson is stick with the text. God and prayer are not mentioned anywhere in the book. Now, of course, they might have prayed. It's safe to assume that they prayed, but that's not what the book wants to teach you. You have other places of the Bible to teach you how prayer is important, but if the author of the book of Esther doesn't mention God and doesn't mention prayer, it's because he wants you to struggle with that. Because how many of us have heard the experiences, and you know, when I was in this difficult situation, then I just prayed, and I'm here to testify, and everything changed. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And because with God, there is no receiving of persons. If he did it for me, if you claim the promises and pray, he will do it for you. And we don't have Bobby Joe today with us. She could give us some examples, as all of you can, that somebody prayed and was healed, and somebody prayed and died. Abel believed in God and was killed. Enoch believed in God, and he was translated, transformed, and taken to heaven. And so the book of Esther teaches us that prayer is not a magic. God works in different ways. So in what ways does God work? It just so happened that there is a vacancy for a queen, and it just so happened that Esther, a Jew, enters into the beauty contest and forgets to fill out the part which says, what's your nationality? And still she wins the competition over 127 women. And just so happened that her uncle Mordecai, of all the people, discovers the plot against the king and saves his life. And it just so happens that he's not rewarded for this noble act. And it just so happens that the king cannot sleep the very night before Haman wants to kill Mordecai and has the gallows built for him. And it just so happens that of all the places in the book of Chronicles that the king is reading or the servants read to him because he can't read, the very night they open the book on the page that mentions Mordecai's brave deed. And it just so happens that the first person coming in the morning to the king's presence when he wants to honor Mordecai is Haman. And it just so happens that instead of becoming the victim of Haman, Haman ends on the gallows that he built for Mordecai, and it just so happens that Mordecai replaces him in his position, and the ring that Haman used to sign the law ends up with Mordecai. It just so happened that. And the lesson is, when do you have a greater sense of God's presence? When you said a prayer and a miracle happened, so you are full, so full of it that you need to report it at the next testimonial or Sabbath meeting, and you say, I am so full of it. Listen to me. I prayed, and God did this for me. When was the last time when you heard someone coming and say, it just so happened that I'm not even sure that God is behind it, but this is how things worked out in my life. Which do you consider the greatest proof of God's presence? And here's the book in the Bible that says, 
actually god is still present even when we don't feel it even when we don't see it even when it seems that things are going in a way that god cannot be behind it rita i think it only becomes obvious how active god has been when you look back over the events that have happened and if you do the root cause analysis and you start where you are and then work back why 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 it comes to the point where it can only have been God intervening here. This is nothing to do with humans. And it's not about us asking, because it was about Esther and Mordecai. There's nothing here to say that they went to God for this. Yes, they were Jews, but how devout Jews were they? We don't know, really. Oh, we know how devout. They stayed in Persia and didn't go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it because he had a good position, paid with shekels from the king's court. So why would he go and track through the desert and lose his income and risk his life? But I think it shows that God can work, can use people who aren't even asking him. God's plan will work out because it's God's plan. And here's the scary thought. God can use people whose faithfulness is not 100%. Because if he was truly faithful, he would be among the groups whose heart was moved by the Spirit to return back to Jerusalem. Obviously, his heart was not moved by the Spirit. And yet God saves them and God works with them and God can use them, which gives hope to you and me because our faithfulness to God is not 100%. In spite of all our best intentions, there are holes in our commitment and our faithfulness. And yet God can work with people like that. Henry. In a quarterly about God's mission, my mission, we continuously focus on the Iran missionaries here. And again, in this story, we are trying to focus on Esther and Mardukai. When the missionary is actually God, right? We talk about the qualities of faithful witness for not bowing down, but they overlook the faithful witness of not having a marriage with people that is not from the people of Israel. And God still is willing to work with them because God was not planning to save the Jews. He was planning to save everybody there. So that's not the point. The point is the faithful missionary God that continues to do what he has planned to do to bring salvation to everybody. And we should not be losing focus of where do we need to be aiming here. It's not in Esther and Mardokai. Yep. So what is it about? If you look under number eight, before we conclude this quarter on mission, maybe we should speak about the shadow mission. Remember when we said you and I don't have a mission, only God has a mission? Now, here's the bad thing about it. Actually, you and I have a mission, but most of the time it's a shadow mission. And shadow mission is not something which is 100% against God's mission. It's only 10 degrees, 180 degrees in the opposite direction. It's just 10 degrees different from God's mission for us. But it's the thing that leads us to hell, away from him. So let's go back to chapter one and let's see how the people in this book have a shadow mission in their life and how they deal with it. So Esther 1 and verses 1 to 9. This happened in the days of Ahasuerus, the same Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. 
The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were present. So what does the author want you to know about this king, Xerxes or Ahasuerus? He is a man of immense power. His kingdom extends from Asia Minor down to Africa to India. And what kind of character he is? He is somebody who needs to show off his greatness. Ostentatious, no inner spirit at all, but he constantly needs other people to tell him what to do and to help him to make up his mind. So what is he going to do? Next verse. Well, he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days in all. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in the citadel of Susa, both great and small, a banquet lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and blue hangings tied with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and colored stones. Drinks were served served in golden goblets, goblets of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished in accordance with the bounty of the king. Drinking was by flagons, without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each one desired. Okay, so here we are. He gives a banquet. Three banquets are mentioned in these nine verses. And the first one, actually the whole book can be divided by the series of banquets. The first one lasts for 180 days, that is six months of serious parting for all the important VIP people. Now that will increase the gross national product of Persian Empire. That's the way to make it prosper. You take away all the important people for six months of drinking. And when then it's all over, he makes another party for the whole capital, open to all common people. And what does he do for common people? He tries to impress them. So all the commoners, they are the hangings of white and blue linen and quartz and purple material and silver rings and marble pillars and porphyry and marble, mother of pearl. And the wine is served in goblets that they have never seen, they don't have at home. Why does he do this? And the drinking is by the flagon, so you can drink without restraint, and turns the palace into the animal house. And then verse 9, third banquet. Furthermore, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the palace of King Ahasuerus. Okay. Interestingly enough, uh, no excesses here, no juvenile behavior. This is the most restrained party, but she needs to do something for the important women. And let's go to verse 10. On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven units who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing the royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the officials her beauty, for she was fair to behold. So finally, after six months of drinking and reveling, plus one week on the 10th day, he gets a brilliant idea. Now that he has been showing off all his possessions, remember in previous verses, now as a crowning act, he's going to show off his ultimate possession. And so he asks Queen Vashti to come into his presence. And what is he going to show to people about her, about her brains, so that she can come and 
do some math problems or to show off her personality. So she's leading a panel discussion on the decline of Babylonian Empire and what contributed to its demise. No, he wants her to come with nothing on, just the crown. And in verse 12... But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command conveyed by the eunuchs. At this, the king was enraged and his anger burned within him. Mm -hmm. And Vashti said, no way, forget it. Come and parade myself after this drunken mob, after six months and seven days of drinking. I don't think so. I'm going to stay home and wash my hair. And the king said, actually, you know, honey, I didn't think it through. This would be really awkward. Sorry that I came up with this idea. I don't want to embarrass you, right? No, he became furious and burned with anger. So what did he do? Verse 13. Then the king consulted the sages who knew the laws, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and custom. Okay, so do you see how the writer is poking fun at the king? The most powerful guy in the world, and he can't control his wife, so he decides to go to the Supreme Court. He makes this the matter of state. What am I going to do with my wife? She decided to wash her hair, and she's not coming to me as I expected. Now, you guys need to tell us what is the solution to this problem. We need to raise the level of threat to our government to Orange because she refused to listen to me. And of course, then they say in verse 19, all right, she can never come into the presence of king again. Now, that will be her punishment. She didn't want to come. She will not come again. And let's give her position to someone else who is better than she. And so this edict was proclaimed through his vast realm, verse 20. And literally it says, through the realm, how vast and magnificent it is. The writer shows that even the Supreme Court is flattering the king and he surrounded himself with people who are just pumping him up. And then all women will show respect to their husbands from the least to the greatest, because this is a major threat to the government. Because if they don't, what are we going to do? And so he deposes Vashti. Sometimes people ask me, Daniel, who is your Bible hero? And they expect, I will say, Daniel or, you know, somebody like that so i always tell them vashti when there is a crowd around jesus for the first 500 years during the millennium i am going to find vashti and say tell me tell me what happened did any of the generals after that say wow what a character what a woman tell me could you keep any of your dresses what about the jewelry did you lose everything did any of those noblemen said Man, I would need a wife like that in my house. Or did she live as a widow and died in poverty and forgotten? Wow, I'm going to talk to Vashti while everybody's crowded around Jesus because I want to know more about this character who in that time, in that place, has the guts to say to the king, forget it. No way. You can't humiliate me like this. Imagine what kind of thinking she has and courage. But I have always wondered on the beauty contest of Esther, I don't think it was like a Miss America or Miss Universe contest because I thought there was something about the harem in it. And I wasn't exactly sure what the bounds are. I'd seen a cartoon as a kid about this story and it looked pretty clean and just had him saying how beautiful she looked. But I got the idea from reading the Bible. It was a little more intimate. I wasn't quite sure what a good Jewess would be able to do in that situation. I guess she had no choice. Okay, so she read the morning edition of the newspapers. Queen Vashti deposed because she refused to come naked into the presence of the king. And she said, hmm, why not? I would do that. And Mordecai says, yep, fill out the application form. Just leave out the nationality column. And we'll come to the other part about the skills and the children's Sabbath school. Yeah. 
All right, let's go to chapter two. And this time he's not going to turn to the Supreme Court. This time after he's sober and he realizes he doesn't have the queen. So he decides I need to get a new queen. So he turns to his bodyguards, the high testosterone young man. How do we solve the problem? So this time not the Supreme Court. And you can guess what the bodyguards say. What is going to be the number one criterion for the new queen? And so they come up with a suggestion of the Miss Meats and Persian Beauty Contest. So anybody knows how many entries do we have in a tennis Grand Slam? 128. So they will have 127, one for each province. And the woman that can please the king the best, she will win the conquest and she will become the queen and she will turn the hand and make the king go wild when he looks at her and she will become the ultimate trophy wife. Can you believe that one day the society and the culture was so superficial that middle-aged men would think how to impress other people by showing off their wealth and power and that they still can attract a wife with youth and beauty? It's hard to believe, but there was a time when such a superficial thinking existed that human race would sink to such a trivial depth. And so that's what he does. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, now they have one shot one date with the king. So maybe we could ask the women here if you knew that you have one opportunity to go on a date with someone you are really interested in and you really want it to go well. Think about the amount of time you would spend preparing for the date, for bathing and hair and makeup and wardrobe selection and accessories and fragrance. Would you spend an hour? Do you think that the preparation would be longer than the date, actually? And of course, I'm not going to ask you how many of you would have enjoyed that preparation more than you would enjoy the date. So how long was the preparation? Chapter 2, verse 12. The turn came for each girl to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their cosmetic treatment. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics for women. Okay, so 12 months of preparation. And of course, the idea is if it's not going to happen after 12 months of preparation, then it's not going to happen at all. And then comes the text. Remember, in the two weeks ago, we asked, Paul, where did you learn these Greek poets in your children's Sabbath school? Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther to go, she was taken to King Ahasuerus in his loyal palace in the 10th month, and the king loved Esther more than any other of the 127 women in this context and all his harem before. Of all the virgins, she won his favor and devotion, and he set the royal crown on her head, and she was made queen instead of Vashti. And you feel like, Esther, where in the children's Sabbath school did you learn the skills so that the pagan king would say, wow. I need this in my harem. I can't live without that. Now, of course, there are those who think that she read him the Sabbath school quarterly the whole night, but you make up your own mind. Lou? Well, even though the word God and prayer is not prominent or mentioned in the book of Esther, I fully believe that the Holy Spirit was actually leading out in all of that that was going on in the heart of Esther, in the heart of the king, Mordecai, and God was working out his plan for the children of Israel and for his people. So the Holy Spirit isn't one that would just 
always stand out. He's very behind the scenes, you might say. And I still liked what Jane was talking about, this humility issue. And I think that goes a long way with God working in the hearts of people when they have a humble heart and they are open to his plan. Good, good. Thank you. That's why we have the book of Esther in the Bible. It just so happened that the Holy Spirit is at work even when you don't see God obviously working. Yeah, sure. And of course, the next thing, what is going to be the next thing in verse 18 with this king, you can be sure. Then the king gave a great banquet to all his officials and ministers, Esther's banquet. He also granted a holiday to the provinces and gave gifts with royal liberality. Okay, it's going to be another party. So what is the shadow mission of the king? To show off his importance, to show off his power. And when someone challenges him and says, maybe this is not a good idea, Vashti gets deposed and she is get rid of because he will not tolerate someone making him look weak or that he's not firmly at power. And that brings us to chapter three, another character, Haman. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agiite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance. He's not bowing down. And so Haman is so obsessed with his own honor that this one man who will not bow down before him, he cannot tolerate that. He gets on its nerves and he decides to get rid of the whole nation. But that won't be that easy. So he goes to Xerxes or Hasuerus and he offers him a bride, remember, two million dollars of his own money. He says, I will pay you this if you write the law to get rid of these people. And the king says, all right, whatever. He doesn't even know what group is he talking about. Now, when the law is passed, Mordecai realizes we have a problem. And let's go to chapter 4 and verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Yeah, Mordecai says to Esther, this young girl that he has raised, this beauty queen, this eye candy, the trophy wife, and says, you have to go to the king. You have to turn this whole deal around. And Esther knows something that he doesn't know. She is not the vanilla of the month anymore. The harem is big, and the king did not request her for the last 30 days. And things are not happily ever after as they seemed when the great party happened and after that night. And there is a law that if you approach the king without being summoned, you are going to be put to death. And the only exception to that would be the king extended golden scepter and spare their life. So it's very clear to Esther that the king is not as excited about her as he was in the early days of the marriage. She has very good reason to question how much influence she got on him now. And then comes the famous words, Esther 4, verses 12 to 14. Mordecai says he's going to challenge her. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. 
Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. So notice Mordecai can challenge the shadow mission of Esther. And so Esther, the fate of the whole nation, the dream of the people of God is all in your hands. You didn't ask for it, but here it is. You have been brought to this point in your life, not for the sake of accumulating an exquisite wardrobe, precious jewelry, or exotic fragrances. You have been brought to this point in your life to become the important factor in saving God's people. Your job is not to be the cherry on the top, the trophy wife, the most desirable and attractive woman of the kingdom. That's not your mission. You have not been brought to this point for the reason that the king thinks you are there. You have been brought to this point to be part of what God is doing on this earth, to be part of God's mission, to work for justice and spare people from great suffering and oppose a man who is vile and evil and supremely powerful. Don't be distracted by a shadow mission. So he helps her to see this is your mission. He's going to challenge that. This is your moment, Esther. This is why you are there. And she gets it. And she just says, I need three days to withdraw with my closest friends. And she asked people to pray. And although you will see how capable she is, she's not going to try to achieve this mission based on her beauty, cleverness, or influence, although they are amazing. She puts her hope that something else needs to intervene. And then she says in verse 16, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And then she says, and if I perish, I perish. I'm going to go to the king, even if it's against the law. And if I die, I die, but I am going to fulfill my mission because I am not here for myself. I am here for others. And amazing that even the time when so many Christian believers say that women's place is in subordination to man and her role is to adorn a man and be a pious woman that should not even try to accomplish anything. One of the greatest heroines of the Bible is a woman who rejects exactly this Cinderella role. And by doing, she rescues all the men in the story. God gave you certain gifts, and you use them for God's purpose. So here's the question. What is your shadow mission? Because everybody has one. And by the way, another woman in the story, Zeresh, when Haman comes home and says, life has no purpose for me. I am not going to happy as long as I see that guy who doesn't bow down to me. Instead of saying to him, grow up, get alive, get a perspective. She says, what's that, a big problem? Let's build the gallows. She is not going to confront the shadow mission of Haman because she's just like him. They found each other and that's why they are married because they support each other's shadow mission and warped ego. And of course, then it goes quickly. Esther goes into the presence of the king and he decides that he extends. Chapter five, verse three, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to the half kingdom, it will be given to you. Now, remember, if she says, yep, I want half kingdom. And besides, I want you. What do you want? I'm really in good mood today. Besides, I want you to revoke an unalterable law of Medes and Persians and put down your chief of staff. She only says, you know, I am having a party. Can you believe how smart she is? Because the king can say no to a party. And so she says, I'm having a party. You can come and bring Haman too. So when he asks, what is your petition? What is your request? She says in verse 7, 
If king regards me with favor and it pleases the king to grant my petition and request, come tomorrow to a banquet that I will prepare. But coming to the second banquet, he already agreed with her request. And then you know what the result is. Here's the question. What is your shadow mission? And who is Mordecai in your life? Because Mordecai can challenge Haman. Mordecai can challenge Esther and remind them why they are there. Remember, when Jesus was here, Satan tempts him to be a Messiah without hunger, to turn the stones into bread, to be a Messiah without pain, throw yourself down and the angels will protect you from the pain, or to be a Messiah without opposition, just bow down. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not my mission. That's the shadow mission. I'm not going to go there. So what's the lesson in the God's mission and our mission quarter? So all throughout our discussion here about Esther, I was thinking about, Lou mentioned that God and prayer aren't mentioned in this book, and I was thinking about Romans 2.14, and there's a flavor of this here in the story. You also ask, well, how do we read the Bible and stuff? So Romans 2.14 says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. This entire story, this experience, is about character. There's character of the king, character of Haman, character of Esther, Mordecai, and how they treat others, how they work within the system. And I think that's what it's about, like having a right character, being other-centered. Esther interceded, so there's an element of intercession in this story. And I think that's what's highlighted here, is character delivers, character saves. Yes. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, this is a great example for all of us. It is another story of a stalwart woman, the fairer sex, the weaker sex, and so forth, who was a woman of great principle. And it's a story that should be tried to be followed and modeled by all of us, regardless men or women, because she was highly principled. And that's an important and significant virtue. All right. Thank you, Henry. There are a lot of elements in the story that are disturbing with the character of Esther. Yeah, she has very good qualities, but also very human qualities as well, or these qualities. And we read the whole story, right? So it is not about perfection. It is not about how good we have to be in order for God to work with us. So to me, the important element of this story is how patient and willing God is to work with us in spite of our good intentions and our not so good intentions because he's in the business of saving and he knows that he's going to be working with terrible human beings trying to do what we think the best but sometimes taking the heads of others as a consequence of how twisted and broken we are. But God is the one that shines in this story. That's right. And he can work even with faulty people. And in spite of their weaknesses, he can turn it into something good. Karen put in the chat, what lesson on mission do we learn from the fact that the Jews kill more than 75,000 people? Look at question number eight. How do you read the book of Esther after the Holocaust? You know, about this plain reading that... I just read the way I understand it. Now, yes, the Bible is inspired, but the way you read it after the Holocaust is different how we read it 200 years ago. And not because the Bible has changed, but something has changed in our world. Because when you read the book of Esther after the Holocaust, it asks you the question, can the persecuted become persecutors? And the lesson mentions, praise the Lord, and people became converted. Yes, 
but where are the 75,000 who died? Now remember, every time there is a discussion about rape, what is the usual answer? They deserved it because of their behavior. And we say, no, 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 you can't think like this. There is a bigger problem in the book of Esther than the fact that Esther didn't fill out her nationality when she filled out the application for the beauty contest. And she said, yeah, I would do what Vashti refused to do. Why not? But after the Holocaust, you have to read it differently and have to ask, what do we in our world need to guard from so that we impose our views on others? And as we said in the previous lesson, Jesus says to the disciples, don't you care what your theological views do to another human being? And the disciples don't. They will one day when you and I will read the book of Esther after the Holocaust. And hopefully we who believe in the larger view and that God will not win because of his power and use of force, we'll see that we cannot use force for God's message to triumph and to help to foster our mission, which we confuse with God's mission. But God works with people where they are. Yes, John Orita said, what are the reflections on the cosmic conflict in the book of Esther? So God is at work through you and me, through fallen human beings, which are not perfect, even to the extent that you don't tell the full story in the children's Sabbath school because it would be too explosive. But when you read it, you realize the main hero must be God, who is working on his mission and he's accomplishing mission by using broken people in spite of their brokenness. And still, you know, it just happens so that somehow God can, as the Portuguese proverb says, God can write straight even on the crooked lines. God can use broken, crooked people and still accomplish his mission because ultimately it's not our mission, it's his mission. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you came into this world to model the acceptance of everybody. And in spite of our brokenness, our shame, and our crooked ego and shadow missions, you still can use us to accomplish something good. But we pray that you give us courage to look the truth in the eyes, even when we don't know what it is, when we realize that it's worse than we thought, that we need to be willing to bring to your light and your face the truth and find forgiveness and change. Help us to be honest. Help us to do what we can so that we are not a hindrance to your mission because we want to serve you. So we thank you for loving us the way we are because nothing is hidden from you even when our needs and brokenness interferes with your mission. Help us to be honest in your presence and thank you that you want to use each one of us. And thank you that by staying with you one day, we will shine brighter and be closer and all the evil that is in us we will be delivered from it because of your kingdom, your power, and your glory forever and ever. Amen.